you? Uh... All right. So this happened a few years ago. Okay. Um, you know, we're getting ready to do this patrol rifle, and I thought, hey, some good food for thought was Utah Valley. Uh, I believe it was the sheriff's department, and an individual that uh, locked his keys in the car uh, at a truck stop. Decides, you know what? I'm I'm too frustrated, so he shoots out his window and you know gets his keys out of his car and drives away. <laughs> Five officers. Wow. There's so many other options to do that, and you know. I, I've lived in Utah. It's uh-huh. not exactly, and it looks like it's winter in the video. It, it doesn't look like the conditions that I would want to roll down the freeway with the window down. So, you know, I don't know if that would have been my choice, of, my course of action. Yeah. But I don't know where this guy's mind was. He was having a bad day, evidently. Um, so he gets pulled over, five officers behind him, um, and decides, you know, I'm really having a bad day now. So he pops off three rounds at the officers and then speeds away. Officers respond uh, when they finally uh, unholster and engage him with like 50 rounds. So each each officer basically fires off 10 rounds uh-huh. um, into the vehicle, managed to shoot out both uh, rear tires. So he's cruising down the I-15 doing about 30, 35 miles an hour. <laughs> They're in pursuit, and one of the officers is like, you know what, I got this, guys. Hold back, and he rushes ahead and gets to an off-ramp to block it, set up a blocking position, and he gets out there with his MP5. MP5. MP5, not not a, uh, a long gun, not a 5.56, and uh, does a mag dump, uh, 27 rounds into this vehicle as the vehicle is passing by. Now, you can from the video, it kind of looks like uh, they have blocked the other side of traffic. I'm hoping that they had, or, you know, it was just what that was his backstop then? Just the, the, other, the, other si- the other side of traffic. Oncoming which, traffic. You know, if you know the I-15, if you're familiar with that, I'm getting excited and getting really loud here. Um <laughs> Oh, I've, I've given it, it once or twice. It goes yeah. down the middle of Utah Valley. Yeah, like either side of the freeway is a populated area. So even if they had stopped the traffic, he's still shooting into a populated area. Um, and if, he does the rainbow of death as he follows the car around, um, managed to sh- shoot the guy in the shoulder. Um, well, we don't know that. The guy had a shoulder wound. Yeah, so it could have been from him. the guys earlier. It could have been from earlier. Um, but he was wearing body armor. Okay. And the vehicle did finally stop, and then they, of course, uh, they approached with shields and apprehended the guy, brought him into custody. He survived. Um, and, you know, I, why I brought that video up was, hey, we're, we're going to talk about patrol rifle and having that next-level thing. And I know right now some I've talked to people. They're like, well, I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to have uh, a 9 mil AR. I have a nine, an AR-9. Um, you know, one of the reasons is training purposes, you know, my kids can get familiar with and things like that. It's not my second or my primary, you know, uh, because I'm always wanting to improve. I want to go from a pistol cartridge to a rifle cartridge for a reason instead of, well, I'm going from pistol to pistol cartridge. How, how long ago was this? About two years ago. And they still have, why the heck would they still have uh, MP5s? It seems ridiculous. Well, you know, we've seen, um, departments here. And what about you? You got any experience with this? Oh, uh, yeah. There's still some people running around with that just through lack of funding or lack of knowledge. There's still this whole idea that pistol rounds are going to overpenetrate. And to quote FBI's ballistic research facility, everybody worries about overpenetration, but not the fact that 70% of rounds fired miss, which I think is the bigger issue. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're having well aimed fire yeah. versus the rainbow of death. Yeah. <laughs> Plus, when you break it down, pistol round in a typical residential structure is going to penetrate more if it's a miss than it would if it was a 5.56, five, mm-hmm. just due to higher mass, lower velocity versus the small caliber high velocity, yeah. like an AR. Wild. Well, that's a yeah. good 
that's a good start. That's a good intro. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to welcome you out to another edition of the Lodestone Training and Consulting Podcast. I'm Jared Ross, and today with me is... Chris Johnson. Flynn. And Chris number two. Glad you're here. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the rifle, or the patrol rifle, and the actual setup of, of that rifle. Basically, the, the AR platform. That's all we're really going to be talking about today. Uh, before we get into the actual podcast, just want to give you a quick 30, 60, 90. Coming up March 18 through 20 is our pistol marksmanship series. So it's three days of our level one pistol classes. You have the option of taking all three days or just one or any combination of those days. It's really our introduction to to marksmanship shooting. And then the last day, the third day, is really heavy on malfunctions and how to uh, work through them. April 22nd through 24th is the rifle marksmanship series. Same um, basic type of a class. It's our level one rifle class we use the ar platform but all rifles are certainly welcome to that it's again it's our introduction to how to shoot how to get rounds on paper and then how to work through problems and malfunctions and then may 15th is our shotgun mastery day one so that is also our level one our introduction to, to how to run a shotgun a lot of people think hey i'm good i've got my pump shotgun i've got a couple rounds of buckshot what can a class teach me well you don't know what you don't know i learned a ton taking that class i mean i'm not a shotgun guy but i thought i could i could i thought i could run a shotgun and i realized how much i had to uh, improve on and i learned so much going to that class you heard my story yes about, uh, yes <laughs> you know how to, how to, how to yeah. load uh-huh. load things That's properly right. i thought i was yeah. trained and no yeah. hey, under stress under pressure cool so now without any further ado <clears throat> let's let's get into the topic at hand um First, we'll start the conversation. When were you first exposed to the AR platform? Well, I'll jump in really quick and, you know, 82nd Airborne, you know. Uh, okay, before that basic training, but mine is military experience. I didn't have one as a, a civilian. Um, by the time that I turned 18, we, we were in the assault weapons ban, and that wasn't an option. People around me didn't have them. That was definitely my first exposure was the M16 and then the M4. So, uh, much like Chris number one, I same story uh, through the military. Uh, if you listen to my intro podcast, you know, I grew up hunting and, and fishing a lot of outdoor stuff, but it was a typical bolt-action hunting rifle. Uh, never really got exposed to it until I entered into the military service. Gotcha. I guess I'm a little bit different than y'all. I had a, that crazy uncle who came over to our house sometime in the mid to late 80s. Like, hey, you guys want to shoot this? So we're in our backyard and... I think I shared this once before um, in one of the podcasts. So my dad's sitting there shooting semi-auto, bang, bang, bang. Then old cousin Lenny, in his craziness, he flips over to full <laughs> with my dad not realizing it. And my dad squeezes the trigger again and sent off a nice little burst. Um, so that's when I was first exposed. And then um, I purchased, during the ban, I purchased a, uh, a Bushmaster. So it had all like the cosmetic things. It didn't have a... A flash hider wasn't threaded and, and all sorts of other cosmetic things but that was my first ar that i i bought and bushmaster at the time they they were all right quality at the time yeah for me uh i bought one in college at the actually at the uh valley forge gun show over there i remember that they were, i bought they were good gun shows <laughs> they were good gun shows yeah got a uh, got myself a stag stripped lower and then at the time all the dermo guns police departments were getting they didn't know this but they they were stripping down 
BM16A1s and making them a bit more modern, and they would sell the M16A1 parts. Okay. So like upper bulkier group stock. So I bought one of those kits and built myself like an M16A1, and that was my first exposure. And then professionally, I mean, I, I carried a G36, HKG36 for a little while, <laughs> and uh, and I was uh, getting, I was going to carbine courses. And I was really getting my butt kicked by guys in the M4s. And so we got M4s in like 2013, 2000, end of 2013. That was my first professional exposure. Okay. So yet again, another professional that had an option to carry something different. Oh, yeah. Who carries an M4 or yep. an AR-15 variant. Yep. Oh, yeah. No, I, I, G36, a little nostalgic because it was, you know, like my very first couple of years. But I would not want to carry that ever again. Yeah. We can do a whole podcast on the G36 if you want sometime. <laughs> <laughs> we don't, that, you know, experience I had, one of the last things I did in group, my uh, team, we went over and we did some cross training in, in Israel. And so we ran with some of their uh, specialized people. I won't go any, any further than that. But, uh, you know, they had the option. The regular troops, were they carrying? I, what, what's the... Tavor. What's, what, what's Tavor, but what's it called yeah. over there? Whatever, the military variant. Yeah. And what did they carry? Because they had the choice... They had M4s, um, so that ought to say something about what they think when they have the choice of, you know, what's better, M4 or Travor? Well, they went with M4s. You look at the Anglosphere, too. I know the uh, the Aussies have the uh, the AUG, mm-hmm. and all their special operations guys have an M4 variant. Same yeah. thing with the Brits. Yep. Yeah. And even, you know, some of the Eastern Bloc countries, as they're coming into <clears throat> the free market and free world, um, you know, they have grown up with the AK variant, and that all their training and everything behind that was AK. Now that they can get whatever they can, whatever they want, Albania, they're running uh, M4s yeah. because they recognize the advantages of the system. Yeah, same with Saudi. Oh, they can buy any gun they want. They're one of the richest countries out there. What do their guys carry? M4. Well, that that should say something. We have a. I won't dime anybody out who's listening, but uh, we've got a couple of diehard uh, students who, you know, it's a pride at this point why they're sticking with other stuff. Hey, you know, I I admit as much as the next guy, I don't like being a trendy guy. I don't like following the crowd. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, uh, everyone's, you know, listening to this band. I don't like them, that, you know. But at some point you have to recognize and you have to admit, no, actually, they're actually pretty good. You know, okay, I can listen to Metallica. <laughs> oh, all through high school, I couldn't yeah. listen to Metallica. Uh, no, everyone listened to Metallica. Yeah. Can't listen to it. And then I find myself years later, like, ah, it's not actually that bad. Yeah, you yeah, know? it's not. You, you know who's really turned on to them now? My my second oldest. Yeah? He, he's like, yeah. yeah, like, I don't know, he's like ashamed to like let me know that he's listening to it. But I'll catch him. What do you listen to? Oh, Master of Puppets. That's right. Like, hmm. mm, yeah. Exactly. I will have to look at my second oldest and see uh, what she's listening to right now. Y- y- you might. I... Look at I get it. People want to be special and different because uh-huh. it's pretty boring just to say, okay, Glock and, a, and an AR. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to figure it, but it's already been figured out. That's the answer. Just <laughs> Well, I mean, you know. And a 9 millimeter Glock, I should yes, make that clear. Yeah. And, and that's where Cerakote comes in. You yeah, know, you right. <laughs> go ahead and have, you know, a, a purple AR and you can be sure. different. Yep. Just, hey, <laughs> at this point, you got to have that reliability. Agreed. Well, and that's one of the things that we're going to get into now is some of is not now, but later on the podcast is what are some of those options or things we can do that uh, set us apart? Yes, well, not, yes, <laughs> for those star belly sneeches out there, yeah, yeah to set you yeah. apart. But no, specifically, like why do we do what we do? What uh, items or what things that do we specifically put on? You know, and all that thought process and reasons why. 
Um, so we've, that's when we were first exposed. So how long have, uh, have you really been using? All of us here have professionally now used uh, that platform for a number of years. 20 plus years for me. Yeah. About 19 for me. Yeah, about, about the same for me, 20 plus. Yeah, only eight. Only eight? Only eight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we like to keep Flynn around because he makes us feel young. You yeah. Know. <laughs> right on. You know, my experience with the, the AR, I get a lot of people, oh, it's not reliable. It's not as, as rugged as an AK. I have spent my professional career in the desert, in an austere environment where, you know, maintenance and things like that are are difficult. Yes, you have to clean your weapon. I'm, I'm sorry. And you know what? Professionals that run AKs clean AKs as yeah, well. Do. Um, they maintain their equipment. They recognize their lives rely upon these these systems. So I have been in torturous conditions with the AR platform, and it has never let me down when my life was on the line. And if there was a malfunction, it was easy to fix. There was no, you know, um, I wasn't running a, a bullpup that I had to take apart or use a tool to fix that malfunction with. I'm not saying I haven't had malfunctions in firefights, but it was a quick slap rack pull and I'm back in the fight. I know I've you know, used it obviously in the desert as well. And in a lot of my combat vacations. So that's a different environment here, but because of that different environment, I've used different uh, lubricants and yes. different things. One of the things that I found that I used when I was still with the 82nd is uh, somebody uh, sent me some Tetra gun. I don't even know if the company's still around or not, but it's kind of like a dryer type type of lubricant. And man, I use that. And it was great because it didn't wasn't like a CLP that collected dust and collected other stuff to to gum everything up. But for the time, and again, as long as I maintained it, mm -hmm. um, it worked really really good for that environment. I don't use it here because again, this is a different environment. But over there, uh, it worked really well for me. Yeah, I remember when they came out with you had the, the graphite, and then you had the dry lubes, and then the wet and the L LSAT, LSAT, mm -hmm. that real thick stuff, mm -hmm. usually for the fifty cal's. Um, I settled on Miltech when that first came out. I think I think when you can find a good quality lube that you don't have to use as much, <clears throat> you're not going to get that dust collection into that that wet oil, mm -hmm. which is what you're trying to mitigate. And I found in Afghanistan in the colder climates, uh, the LSAT, we really liked that on our weapons uh, because it was a thicker uh, lubricant, so it. It was designed to work in that that thicker consistency, um, where like other things would start to gum up and have an issue. We were having a lot, you know, we're running around. It's four degrees outside. Uh, our team sergeant had spent some time in Alaska, and uh, he was like, "Well, you know, we can always take the the LSAT from the Mark 19s and and try that, and it, it worked." Yeah, I so a couple of uh, team guys we went duck hunting. And we all lubed our guns with CLP. Well, we had to break ice to get out and set our decoys. And we're in the waders just freezing. And shooting light came. And a set of ducks came in. And everybody stood up. And it was click, 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 all down the line. <laughs> so we racked our guns and tried it again. And same thing. All you heard were clicks. Well, it turned out the CLP had frozen. So our firing yeah. pins weren't moving. So it, it is environmental. You do have to understand where you're operating and what lubrication, what, what you need to take care mm -hmm. of your weapon systems. And it does change. Uh, 
we had the conversation earlier this weekend about environmental impacts on your rounds and why if you change locations, you re-zero. You know, the humidity, the heat, the temperature, it's going to be a variable. You re-zero. Yeah, mostly just used it here in the United States uh, <clears throat> in an urban area, but it's the same thing. I mean, I'm running for my team. We have 55 rifles. We have to keep running, and uh, I'm working with police officers who are not always the most maintenance-conscious people. And, uh, again, going by Internet logic, these are 10.3-inch barrels with suppressors, and they're select fire. The only issues I've ever seen are guys failing to lose their weapon. Not even clean cleanliness issues, just a lack of lubrication. Mm-hmm. And we see it at classes, too, where guys don't lube the gun. But my, Well, let me ask that yeah. question to you. With that and with what you're using them for, you guys, how many rounds you put through them? You, you're, you're in your operations, on your hits, oh, yeah. you're right. not shooting no, at all. No, we're not generally shooting yeah. people, yeah. But training-wise, we're probably doing about uh, like 20,000 rounds a year, something like that. Okay. Yeah, so in the training cycle, so that's... Flynn has many treasures that he has said while we've been training together that I just absolutely love. We were training here in Pennsylvania, and everyone's rifles were dry, and he just stops, and he's like, this is where oil was discovered. (laughs) (laughs) How is it that we're in the state of oil that you guys are running dry guns? And I'm just like, I really like this guy. It was one of the first times I had really worked with him. I'm like, I'm really going to enjoy working with this guy. So... Going back to your environment, right? You're yeah. you're going multiple environments in a yeah. day, right? Oh, yeah. you, so oh, you're yeah. riding in your car. Yep. It's it's warm in there. If oh, it's yeah. cold outside, now you're okay. getting outside. And that's right? a real issue. Yeah. Guns sweat, guns. Which is generally optics, why I try everything. to keep windows down and, and the heat and just dress for being outside instead mm-hmm. of because I've seen it where guys will uh, they'll be dressed to stay in the car and they get out and they're freezing and their rifles up because all fogged up and everything. So Yep. Only have to have that happen once. I was on perimeter, and uh, I get out and I was moving in position. My thirty bombs were all fogged. I had to reach up and yep. clear them out. And, yep, yep. Kept the window down from then on. Nice, good call. Why is your gun set up the way it is? What is it intended? Because it's not. If if your rifle is a fashion statement, if it's just an accessory piece, if it's just a glorified purse that you want people to see, okay, that's one thing. But you should really think about why. Why am I using this? This weapon why do i have this ar platform what's this intended use and that's going to drive how uh, how your weapon's going to be set up so how and why do you set up your weapons so i'll jump on that one so i use a work gun for training and self-defense looking at the ar platform for self-defense mainly for my family it's easier for them to operate uh, they're more accurate with it because they've got those those more points of contact with, with that, that weapon system versus a pistol. And I can have the light, everything's easier for them to use. The recoil is manageable. And it's, in my opinion, it's just a better platform for a self-defense system. I'm running a utility gun right now. That's what I, I refer to it. it, it it's versatile across training, uh, home defense, and it's based off of my experience in combat the only difference is it's a 16-inch gun instead of 14.5. Um, I have gone back and forth running a, a real short barrel, you know, 10.5, um, but I usually run that with a suppressor uh, downrange. Here in the States, I'm not worried about my weapon system sounding different than my Jundies. You know, make sure the team guys all sound the same so we know who's in contact. 
So the suppressor's not a, a necessary need for me right now. Um, running in the house, 16 inches is not ridiculously big. Running in the car, it's not ridiculously big. I hear people say, I need a seven inch for, for housework. No, you don't. Um, people can people have done housework with 20 inch guns. Uh, they managed to do it you know, before. Yeah, be- yeah, before, you know, um, shortened rifles. You got, what, 82nd and 101st in, in World War II, yes. running around with Grands doing housework. Yes. And were successful so, at it. And it's, is it more convenient, more comfortable? Maybe. But what am I sacrificing? I'm sacrificing that if I've got to take a 500-meter shot, I've got to do a lot more effort. And where my utility rifle is set up, that it does everything that I need to to about 500 meters. I'm comfortable to 500 meters. Um, and that's my thought process behind it. It's a utility item. Yeah, I, I'd almost take that, that utility concept. I always thought of it more as, as a GP gun. But the, the problem becomes for us, we do have such a varied set of tasks. We spend a lot of time in vehicles doing vehicle stuff. Yeah. We do hit a lot of very tight project apartments, but then we hit big single family houses. We have woodland stuff. We have a... Uh, major sporting events we have to cover, things like that. And so we need kind of a flexible gun because you can absolutely build a super dedicated. Purpose CQB. built, yeah, yes. But yeah. I call it golf bagging. I hate guys who are like, I'm going to go grab my nine iron for this, my pitching match for this. I just wanted one one gun that kind of kind of does a whole lot. And the only difference is that I would agree with you is my work gun is is an 11.5 and but has a suppressor. My personal gun is, is a 14.5. With a pinned and welded flash yeah. hider, because it's the same thing as I'm not as worried about that, and I want a light, handy gun that can go from zero to, to two, three hundred. Cool. If I would say five hundred, but I'm not as good of a shot yeah. as Chris. <laughs> you can do five hundred. Five hundred is really easy, yeah. it, and it, it comes down to: Have you had the opportunity to train on a five hundred meter range? Give yourself a morning on a five hundred meter range, and you're going to walk away like, okay, this weapon system is totally capable of doing that and i am totally capable of doing that um it's one of the things that having that confidence you know your equipment oh yeah you just got to get out there and do it yep you just reminded me of got nothing to do with this but uh during a pmt before before pre-mission training yeah before my last trip uh, i knew we were going to be in a very open environment so i knew that i was going to carry the scar heavy because you know that battle rifle can can reach out a little bit so we're doing pmt pre-mission training and uh I totally pulled the, the Costanza drill. I was standing offhand with the shorty barrel with a L can on it. And uh, one particular piece of steel was something like 812 meters, 820 meters, something like that. And, you know, I'm getting some shots off. And then all of a sudden, ka-ting, I, I, hear, I hit, and that's it. I'm done. And everyone, like, was amazed. <laughs> they, they didn't pay attention to, like, the 20, 30 rounds I shot beforehand before I finally hit it. But as soon as I hit yeah. it, you know, I was a rock star. Anyways, you got to dial it in. Yeah, see yeah. where you're in. Yeah, I was really, I was, you know, bracketing those mortars until I finally and, hit. And <laughs> so, there's a good lesson right there of you have to be able to get out there on a KD range. Yep. And you have to learn what your round, yeah, and your rifle is doing at those ranges. So yeah, you you figured it out over 20 rounds, but if you had taken another shot, you'd already figured out what it was. Yeah. And you would have hit yeah. it, and you would have continued to do it. So. And that's the thing, especially because we started with 10 threes and then we moved to 11 fives. But a lot of people think those little, I know AR pistols and SBRs are a lot more popular now. And a lot of people think they really can't go that far with them. I know with our um, our bomb guys, because when, when, they're integrated with us, and we had they had 
the same. They were getting their rifles, and they wanted 16-inch guns or 14 fives because mm-hmm. they said, well, you know, we're not going to be doing so much, you know, housework. We need something that really reaches out. And I was like, do you, do you know how far you can shoot with a 10-3? Like, yeah. pretty far. So, so that it, it's just recognizing if you have an AR pistol coming out to a class and seeing how far you can actually push that because I think people will be, be surprised. Yeah. Absolutely. So right now I have three primary weapons. Uh, I've got my work gun, which, you know, it's the Daniel Defense uh, Mark 18 upper, and I have that suppressed. And then I uh, also have uh, a 14.5-inch barrel that we put with the Geisley rails on them. So that's just a standard work gun, all of the standard stuff, though. I think the only thing is I have put a law, a tactical folder on it, and then also uh, I think there's a grip stop on it. Other than that, everything is, is what's been issued to me. Then at home, I've got my rifle that uh that's pretty much what i use for classes and in training and then if i can get to it then that's what i'll use but next to my bed is an ar pistol that i that i use and with that and that one's suppressed too um but that one there i'm very comfortable with point blank all the way out to at least 250 Mm -hmm. um, meters with with that thing it's it's a good go-to weapon but the one that you'll primarily see me out in classes and stuff is my personal, uh, you know, 16-inch AR. Cool. Um, well, let's start talking some specifics. And uh, each of one of these topics, if we don't have much to say, we can just gloss over it. That's fine. But sure. if you have some, you know, heartfelt uh, information or experience, please, you know, and opinions, uh, jump right in. Um, one thing I want to say before we start this is I remember running a class a couple of years ago. And this one uh, guy kept trying to, he kept bugging me, kept like drills done. He kept wanting to talk to me. He's like, so metallurgy and with the barrel and, and the length and, and how does this fit? And, and he's talking all this super nerd stuff. And the guy wasn't hitting very well with what he had. And I was getting frustrated, like, man, finally, I'm like, I, I don't care what the metallurgy is. I'm shoot people in the face. You know, that, that's, that's a term, uh, you know, that's a, whatever you call it. A, uh, what, what do you call it? Figure of speech. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah, so I shoot people in the face. I teach people to shoot people in the face. I can teach you how to shoot. Uh, I don't care what all this you know, stuff break down. And I think I really hurt his feelings because he uh, really didn't, he just kind of mumbled the rest of the day that I didn't want to nerd out with him with the metallurgy of his particular barrel when he couldn't hit, uh, he couldn't group to save his life. Um, so we're going to get into, and I hope we get into some very specific things as we talk about this stuff because it's important. But uh What's more important is whatever tool you have, learn how to use it. We um, talked about making yourself stand out, stand out by being a good shooter. Yeah. <laughs> I can get a cool rifle. I'm going to throw out there that, yes, there are things you can put on your gun that make it more comfortable. But if you're not doing the fundamentals, it doesn't matter. Um, you can hand me uh, a guitar that was designed for Jimi Hendrix. That you know, I mean, it is absolutely the best thing in the world. Guess what? I can't play the guitar. You know, it, it, nothing's going to happen. I've had students ask, what, what do I need to buy to put in my gun so I can shoot like you? And my response is always the same thing. 250,000 rounds. Buy ammo, lots of ammo, and put that ammo in your gun. You know, one of the things I learned as an instructor for Cephalic is for a while, some guys um, who were instructing, they were bringing their really nice personal guns down there and running some demos. So some of the, the SF cats... Um, especially some of the guys who have been around for a little bit and still couldn't shoot as good as they should. Like, well, the only reason you can shoot that good is because you got that tricked out race gun. So that's when we switched and really good. Um, and you'll see me doing it class where 
some of the demos, I won't shoot mine. I'll, I'll let me borrow yours and take a student's gun. And that's when we, we went to just stock guns and still smoke the drills because we're doing them right. So then these guys uh, who were complaining, they didn't have an argument then. So principles and fundamentals aside, what items do we change out on our guns to make them a little bit better? Well, let's start at the beginning. Let's talk receivers. What okay. do you want or what do you like or do you care what your receiver is? I don't care if it's um, billet or if it's milled or what. What I'm looking for is does it match? Does it fit together well? Um, it's just holding pieces in place. There's better stuff out there. There's worse stuff out there. I'm gonna, When I hear things are bad, I'm going to avoid them. But I'm not going to throw good money after something just because of, well, supposedly, or the internet says. I've seen some very Gucci, and I mean Gucci, not like Toyota. I mean like uh, like Lotus Gucci at classes, and they haven't run very well. Or they had issues. I know one guy had a, a grip stop mounted on his rail of his very fancy gun, and uh, he couldn't get it mounted to where it needed to be. And he's like, oh, but I really like the rifle. Like, well, it's probably better to have an in-spec rail mm-hmm. than a fancy rail where yeah. you can't use the grip stop. Absolutely. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm the same way. I want my parts. They just need to work. They need to work, be reliable. And I, I'm kind of cheap, so I'm looking at that price point. I want quality stuff, but I don't need to buy that really expensive stuff because I'm not necessarily gaining more. Okay, so... Receiver, we're talking stuff and parts. What, what do you want inside there? What kind of? Uh... Well, let me back up a second. So yeah. I've got to, I've got to remind myself. I've got to wear two hats. So, like I say, we're all victims of our experience. And one of mine is, we've got a couple thousand patrol rifles, and then you know how many rifles we have up up in my unit to keep running. And so, I've seen a lot of problems, a lot of other brands, and there's only one brand that I know that can just pump out. If I called them and said, "Hey, I need five thousand rifles." this company would say, okay, no problem, just send the check. And that's and that's Colt. And it's not that Colt is the best, it's that they've been such a consistent name for so, so long. And so all my personal stuff is Colt. That being said, I got to be honest, it really doesn't matter all that much for a receiver. If you buy a decent one that's in spec from a decent company, you're you're good to go, really. And so That's really what I'm looking at. Yeah. Is the, are the tolerances right? Yeah. The tolerances right? Yeah. Okay, I'm good. I, I like Aero Precision. Their tolerances. If I, I pick one up uh, off the shelf today, and I measure it compared out to one that I bought three years ago, it's the same, and that's a mark of quality to me. Yep, and that's consistency. Exactly. And with the market being so big now, there are only ultimately I think a, a handful of forge houses actually making. But again, and this goes back to not necessarily Colt, which again I will say. If you're an agency customer, stick with Colt. It's just easier. You won't have as, as many problems. But as an individual, you have a lot more options yeah. because you have a lot more flexibility. And with that, the only thing I'd say is stick to like that standard pattern because one of the problems with billets is a, a lot of uh, aftermarket rails won't fit with them. Mm-hmm. And now I, I actually had a guy who was talking about, oh, yeah, you know, my, my rail's out of spec. I was like, mm, no, you, you deviated from the spec with your billet up a receiver. A friend of mine is building a rifle. Yeah. And it's not the rail's fault. It's... The uppers fault so stick with like that standard gi pattern and, and and everything will work with it what about well one thing that i've seen in, in one of our classes a couple of years ago i had a guy come up with a uh, polymer lower mm. and you know that's 
that's fine. It is what it is. You know, you had to think with the quote Stephen R. Covey, you know, begin with the end in mind. Why do you have that, that weapon? What are you using it for? If it's just for, for fun toy sport thing, no problem. This unfortunate guy had this, uh, polymer lower that he went and had it, uh, did the tax stamp. So it'd be a registered SBR. And then it cracked and broke in class. And, and, and that's it. I mean, the, your, your receivers broke, road, your man. guns broke. So that, that I'm glad you brought that up. Cause it's, it's, we forget. I mean, like you guys, well, you, that's right. You guys only got it, but you, you were a gun guy for a long time. You were ABC, mm-hmm. arm like Bushmaster Colt. And don't, don't mess with the Olympic arms. And like, all, uh-huh. remember the cast receivers, like the Sendras and like those would break and you don't see it too much anymore, but I'd say, yeah, stick with forged and don't mess with like some of these cast. Yeah. Because plastic or whatever else. Not that they're terrible. It's just no, it's, they're they're an unknown and and, and well, there's if, no spec. And if it's just a toy, yeah. nothing wrong with that. Yeah, but but then if you're yeah. gonna SBR the thing, and man, that, that's yeah. One of the great things about the AR platform is your lower receiver is holding things in place. Yes, yes, same. With, yeah. And so like, there's a guy on the internet that made a lower receiver out of Lego bricks. Yeah. And it functions. Okay. <laughs> I mean, and he did it as to show you, like, look, there's very little going on here. And so people will waste money to buy a yes. name yes. for something on a part that could be made out of plastic. Yep. Now, I'm not saying that you should make it out of plastic, but think about where you're spending your money. Um, and then think about with any part, I, I really give this this caution who are you as a shooter and are you ready to is is that piece holding you back is it you know slowing a function or causing a malfunction throwing a fancy trigger in there isn't necessarily going to make you a better shooter if you can't break the trigger clean in the first place yep so i'll admit i bought a a polymer lower i got a good price on it it's a uh company they use the polymer with some reinforced reinforced fibers so i bought it wanting to take it to one of our more like a level two class Mm -hmm. and just work it and see if i can break it so like chris said the the lower is holding those parts right so in theory you use a lego yeah right but my my issue is is when we start manipulating it like it should be around barriers and i'm pulling on stuff with a with a sling and manipulating that lower from from that upper, is it going to break at the pins or a different critical now, now mark? Th- this was this was years ago, so my memory isn't as clean as it as it probably should be. But with that particular one that broke, I think it was through the use through through actually treating it in the real world, not anything internal, not that there's any overpressure, but it's because he was actually working it yep. hard with barricades and with movement and with falling to the ground and, and that stuff. It was through that kind of abuse. That's what actually finally cracked. It. Absolutely. And I, I tell guys coming through the course, you know, they've got those really expensive parts on there. I'm like, man, if I spend $2,500 on this or 20 bucks, I'm still beating on this thing. Like yep. I bought it for nothing because it needs to work. And if I spend $2,500 on a scope and I slam it against a barrier when I'm getting in position and it breaks, well, that's 2500 bucks. That just yeah. wasn't worth it. You should remind me, when I went through Sears school, there were three officers who were in our class. And right before we started Sears school, all three of them went to whatever local shop and each of them bought a Topps uh, Tom Brown tracker knife. And if you're not mm. familiar with it, that's the one that was used in... Uh, 
Haunted? Haunted, yes. Yeah. Using Haunted. So they do- dropped all this money on arguably a very good utility, you know, survival work knife. But because they spent so much money on it, they were afraid to use it. So they just yeah. sat in their sheets <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, um, so let's talk about some of those parts. What do you like? What do you look for? And so the listeners know there is no company, nobody is sponsoring us, paying us, whatever. So if we say, hey, we really like this or dig this, it's because yep. we honestly yep. do. Mm-hmm. Not that anyone is giving us anything for it. If, if Colt is listening and they want to sponsor me, I, I will take that. But, <laughs> but no, yeah. I'm not yeah. compensated yeah. by Absolutely. Colt in any way. Anything after this part, this yeah. episode is yeah. just fine. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 We'll, we'll disclose that. Yeah. So uh, probably the number one thing that I look at modifying first in a rifle is the buffer system. Mm. Um, be, because... I'll clean a trigger. Uh, I'm not really worried about that. But if my gas system, my buffer system is not working properly, that's going to mess up. That's going to cause problems. So I want something that's very, very reliable and consistent across the board. So in my guns, I like to run the um, Geisley Super 42 spring and buffer system. Uh, I... As far as harmonics and the twang and all that, that's one of the, I consider that a side effect. Uh, yes, that disappears, but that's not what I'm looking at. I'm looking at that consistency that that uh, runs in my, my weapon systems. And I've run that same uh, in AR pistols that I've built, uh, my wife's super long gun that she built, my utility gun has one in it right now. And I'm, it's 60 some dollars and as opposed to 13 on something else, I feel that that extra money is definitely worth it. So that's the first thing that I'm going to change out on a, on a weapon system. And it's just to add that more reliability and more consistency of reliability. Um, in my experience of working on the air platform uh, as a weapon sergeant building, that's where people are having problems is their, their cycling system, their gas system. Talk about what you've done to buffers. As far as uh, adding or taking away. Yeah. So those of you that are familiar out there about the, the buffer has different weights and having a light enough buffer that is cycling consistently, but heavy enough buffer that is still pushing back. It's that sweet spot. And so industry, you've got the, the H1, H2, H3, and it's <clears throat> different weights. Um, and then there, there's all you can buy different companies and you will have, you know, this one is, uh, eight, eight ounces. This one is 7.3 ounces. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so the, uh, in, in grams, because we're going to go with grams, uh, Geisley H one is 106 grams, H two, 128 and H three, 150 grams. Um, that's just off the top of your head. No, I, I'm going to. Uh, I'm going to give the shout out to Flynn who has this on his phone because what a nerd. Uh, he, he came prepared. For he came prepared. Yeah, hey. he really prepared. Yeah. Why am I talking about buffers when he's got the notes? Yeah, don't um, worry. I got ballistic tables too on my phone. Yeah, good. Uh, so I have messed around with making my own because I'm cheap, uh, and on that, it's not that I'm cheap. I also like the experimentation of it. I like to play around. So I will go to Hobby Lobby and I will buy the um, Pinewood Derby car tungsten weights. And 
the Boy Scouts coming through yet again. Yeah, the Boy Scouts come through. You had a common yeah. theme. Um, oh, Flynn, you don't know because you haven't heard it yet. Uh, Chris too also went to Philmont. Oh, so how did he start the podcast? I was a Boy Scout. I went to Philmont. So I am, I'm an eagle. Yeah. Yeah. I am once so, again. So we have two eagles here. I am once again left yeah. out. Yes. Um, so I've messed around making my own buffer system. It's not hard. You knock out that roll pin and you play around with it. It's kind of, I'll, I'll admit, a little bit of nerddom. It is fun. It is very interesting to play around and kind of customize a gun that way. And you can make a, a, a poor gun into a reliable gun just by doing that. Something that is consistently having that, that gas system malfunction. Changing out your buffer weight can fix that problem very easily. Yeah. And to jump on that, so you look at those competition guns. Those are, yeah, they're finely tuned. It's it's like doing a race car, because ARs are typically over gas to make them reliable, so it'll shoot in different conditions. So when you see those competition shooters and they're just, you know, shooting thirty rounds in what would take most people the time to shoot two, it's because those are tuned and you see that bolt just moving as as it goes but what you don't see is the time and effort going in to tune that and also the time and effort going in to make sure that that is always cleaned ready to go there's with that 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 tuning there comes the trade-off of more maintenance with that and then you also lose that reliability so if they start getting dirt or it starts getting dirtier it's not going to have the gas to function that weapon system and the consequences for a failure at a match are just you lose. Yes, you, so. or you're minus 10 seconds, whatever yeah, it is, right? right? Yeah. Yep. And for us, it's <clears throat> probably your life. Yeah. Uh, so to go on buffers, uh, same thing. Uh, when we first got our our shorty Colts, I think they all came with H2s. And then as we started getting the suppressors in, um, I was eating a lot of gas. And so I started researching, hey, how do I, I fix this? And so I stepped up to an H3. And that, and that solved the issue. But... Now we're starting to play with the, the Super 42s. For so long, I resisted that because I burn through a few recoil springs a year. And it's easy because I just go to the armor, say, hey, I need a recoil spring. Mine's compressed beyond you know usefulness and grab a new one and throw it in there and, and drive on. But How did, how did uh, they come up with that recoil spring? That's, yeah, so, that's, yeah, when I heard Chris's story, I was yeah. like, oh, yeah. Um, so with the, um, the story, I, I understand. Geisley was down at a special mission unit looking around their arms room, and uh, he saw this chart on the wall where they were measuring the, the recoil springs. We, we have the same chart, yeah. To see if it was right. And he was like, hey, I'm an engineer. I can fix that. That's easy. And, like, the the concept of a braided spring is nothing new. And I, I, I'm assuming, I'm making the guess that the whole 42 thing comes from the MG42, which is a, machine, a German machine gun that has a braided coil spring. So I'm just... I'm going to guess that that's what that was from. But, uh, yeah, yeah it, and I have noticed an increased reliability in the spring life yeah. uh, since I've been running. And I've been running for two or three years now. And it, that was when I was still active duty um, was the first time I was exposed to it. And that's – I like it. I like it a lot. So when I started playing with it, my goal was to find the heaviest buffer I could that would still lock the gun back when it was unsuppressed because obviously if you throw a suppressor on there, you get more back pressure. So – it was playing right that. One of the things I found interesting is as we're experimenting with the Super 42s, um, so we got like a handful out there for guys. And one of our guys, actually Chris's favorite, um, he I put a Super 42 in his gun, and we found that 
while my gun with an H3 and a standard Colt spring will run when we swap out for blue bolts for simunitions. It'll run no problems, but the Super 42, because it's been converted like a straight blowback, it won't cycle. So instead of giving up the Super 42, my teammate has a uh, has in his little training box. He has just a regular H2 and a regular spring, and so when it's time to train, he'll you know pull his his Super 42 and stick that in, and then yep. when we go back out, he'll you know when we swap out from blue bolts to live, we'll he'll swap it out. But that's again, if you want the performance, you've got mm -hmm. to put in the work. Yep. It also helps. So I shoot a lot of different rounds. I go from the, the 55 grain, mm -hmm. just plinking on the range, yeah. running classes because it's cheap, to um, I'm shooting 77 grain uh, match-grade ammo out of that, and it, it cycles all of them. So you get that, that good reliability out of it. Cool. All right, what do you guys like in trigger groups? And... <laughs> so I like just standard mill trigger. I'll go with a... An enhanced trigger through I like uh, unbranded AR. They've got a lot of good parts. They so that company started much like Arrow did. They're the company that makes all these parts and sell them to the other companies that market them at, and they make them at their specs or however it is. Um, so they've got a couple enhanced triggers, um, but I've never been that guy like, oh, I need this great trigger because it's going to make me a better shot. No, nah, I need a reliable trigger that's the same every time whether I'm shooting my work gun or this gun or my utility gun I like to have the same trigger and I, I don't believe that oh that that two pound trigger pull is gonna make me a better shot no if you're at that point where you can outshoot that gun then yeah then you need that trigger but most people you don't need that trigger I'm not opposed to putting in a uh, an aftermarket trigger on that, I don't put in an aftermarket trigger. Well, go ahead and uh, because we, we and do AR, we yeah, do the, lower, the builds. lower builds. And in the lower build class, I teach how to do what it's lovingly referred to as the Green Bray trigger. And that's because way back in the day, um, guys were running these competition cassette triggers mm -hmm. in their guns. And an individual had a malfunction, a catastrophic trigger malfunction. And what was the knee jerk reaction? No aftermarket triggers. And so we had ourselves deploying with stuff that, you know, when it says mill spec, that means lowest bidder, okay? Mm -hmm. yeah, understand that. Um, so we were deploying with stuff that wasn't exactly consistent. It wasn't quality. Like I could pick up my gun and the trigger was one thing, and then I could pick up my teammate's gun and the trigger was, was different. And so we learned how to polish our triggers and clean up our triggers and change springs to get that reliable trigger. So I'm um, through that because of uh, hires force on uh, what we could put in our guns, we learned how to modify. And so that's what I'll do. I will get a good quality lower parts kit that I spend, you know, 50 to 80 bucks on. And then that comes with all my springs. I will change out my, uh, my, uh, trigger springs for JP Enterprises. Uh, I like their 3.5 pound uh, trigger springs. And then I will clean up the uh, the trigger just by doing a quick polish job, which is taking off your manufacturing uh, marks, which is usually where the resistance comes from. And then you'll have a clean, cons consistent trigger across the board, and they all feel the same. They're going to break where you want to break, and you get that kind of customization about it. 
Uh, it's not hard to do. Um, that's one of the things I love teaching that class is showing people and having uh, one of the first classes we taught, we had a guy who bought an aftermarket trigger. I'm not going to say the company, a reputable company. And he kept switching back and forth. And he's like, I can't tell the difference. I could tell the difference because yes, that trigger, that aftermarket trigger was a very, very nice trigger. But this guy at his level, he couldn't tell the difference at all. And yes, I mean, it's, it's getting that practice and knowing, hey, if I'm not already out shooting the gun that I have, I don't. Re- I need to train. I need to get better. So, again, I think people waste a lot of money thinking that this next bell or whistle is going to turn them into a better shooter. When in you're hearing it constantly through this podcast, it's putting more bullets and more time on the range. That's what's going to make you better. Not opposed to aftermarket triggers, <clears throat> however. Mm-hmm. And again. Anyone wants to give me anything, I will definitely run it. <laughs> I know I've tried a couple different things. Um, I tried, uh, oh man, this was years ago now, uh, seven years ago, eight years ago, um, for one of the, the demo rifles. I had a, an Elf trigger. Elf is that the name of the company? Elf. Uh, I yeah, I, I think so. But um, it was a it was okay, but it kept hanging up on me. So I could shoot, could shoot fast, and that reset was really nice. And then it would just just hang and the trigger itself would, would freeze up and uh you know i tried playing with it and and, and and tweaking it and again when it was when it was on it was on but when, when it wasn't man it was anyway so since it wasn't i wouldn't rely on it i wouldn't use that to uh um you know to protect myself i didn't want to take that chance it, for the thing it's up. like you said uh you have to start with the end in mind yeah so if this is just a, a gaming thing it's just a yeah, I need to shoot balloons faster mm-hmm. than the next guy, and this is going to shave that tenth of a second. Okay, but shaving that tenth of a second, I'm accepting a reliability issue. Okay, you can do that. And I can't. They have a fairly good reputation, and a lot of guys like them. A lot, you know, very successful. So it could have been just that particular one. I, I never sent it back to them, and never like complained. It's just you know my experience with the thing. So uh, I've also ran some uh, was it ALG triggers, mm-hmm. yeah, and those are nice yeah. not very expensive you know r- really good um triggers and then also I'm gonna, uh, i'll throw some love out to the ak folks out there um yeah when it comes to like ar i don't really feel like i got changed mm-hmm. much out but the ak's that i've uh, had the privilege of playing with that have been modified with like an alg trigger yeah. mm-hmm. makes a big difference man I, I remember shooting a, a student's AK, and I turned to him, and I was like, this is not an AK. You you lied to <laughs> me, you know? It, it's like, you know, wh- wh- what is this? And then, you know, my work gun has has the Geisley, uh trigger in it, and that's that rocks. That, that's a really nice and smooth, really like that one. Yeah, so triggers, again, being a gun guy for a while and just, like, watching the trends, because when I was first a gun guy, I didn't have any money because I was either a broke college student or a rookie who didn't have – wasn't making a whole lot of money money had to go elsewhere so did a lot of reading and watching and very early on there were a couple again reputable brands but they became very popular because they were like these cheaper two-stage match triggers yeah the problem is they would go down eventually like much sooner than, than a stock trigger group would and even a very big military contractor had a lot of issues with the the two-stage triggers in their in their their guns and uh so i was always like oh gi triggers gi triggers gi triggers and uh that's what I have my personal guns before I went to the team. And then when I got on there, we obviously had stock triggers in the guns. And like you said, I probably had a stock trigger for seven or eight, yeah, six, seven years. And then we got 
started looking at Geisley triggers. Mm -hmm. And I would not have been able to appreciate the difference. Had you not run that? Had I not run yeah. the GI trigger. And so the things I think I'd look for in a trigger are number one is reliability. And number two is control. And number three is speed. I think people, I think as much as I'm a believer in shot timers, I think people too often place emphasis on just raw speed. And especially if you're a police officer or an armed citizen, you don't want to shoot so fast that you can no longer assess if deadly force is still required. And I think there's just like this emphasis on speed because it's one of the few things you can actually quantify on the range is speed and accuracy. So, because actually for me, I can actually shoot a GI trigger faster than the guys that trigger because it's got a much stronger spring, so it resets faster. But the guys, and that was the thing with, with that I found with Elf. Yep. I was able to shoot a GI trigger faster yep. with that reset because yep. no, I know what I'm doing compared yep. to to their whatever, yes, right? Know, whatever the yeah, go ahead. Yeah, but what I like the guys for is just that extra control. Mm -hmm. So my personal guns have Geisley Super Semi-Autos, and, and all our work guns have the Geisley uh, Super Select Fires. And I think if you're looking for an actual duty-grade trigger, guys is the way to go. But the GI trigger is free. It comes with a gun, yeah, and it works. Yeah, and yeah. a lot of guys did a lot of work with that for a lot of years. So it's, well, it's again, get the reps in on the range again, and then decide. That, that's one of the golden upgrade. things. That's one of the golden things about the the build class is yeah. we're not building it, you're building it. Yep. But Chris is holding your hand and walking you through, showing you how to polish and and how to take that yeah that GI trigger group and and just smoothing it out. And if I could just put one thing on there, what Chris said is 100 percent right. Those cassette triggers are competition only. I would not put yeah. that in anything that I I needed to function because yeah. they will go out of adjustment eventually. I'm in the same boat. Plus, I don't like them because if something breaks, yeah. On yeah. a normal trigger, I can, I can shotgun it. Yep. Whereas basically, take that rear pin yep. out and open it up and look in there and see what it is. Oh, yeah. With a cassette cassette trigger, it's all inside that little cassette. Yep. So I don't know what's broke. It might not be the trigger, but I can't make that assessment just by looking at it. Yeah. yeah. Any other thoughts about anything internal? Oh yeah, bolts, bolt carrier groups. Oh, please, yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Wow. So with that, we're going to nerd out for a second here. I don't have my spreadsheet on my on my oh. phone, but like we talked about, one of the things is we're all, all victims of our circumstances. And mine is because I'm generally in charge, not in charge of, I've generally been tasked with what we're buying. So I have to go down the rabbit hole. And with like what Chris said, is, is that receiver, be it the upper or the lower, that's just holding the parts. You can skeletonize that thing like crazy because really the ultimately the things that matter are the fire control group, the uh the the recoil spring and, and buffer and the uh, bolt carrier bolt and and the barrel itself so to me if you're going to save some money i'd say go with that with the upper and the, and the lower but with the bolt carrier group you've got to have certain things you've got if anybody has been around guns for a long time they remember the chart the chart that was on ar15.com and m4carbine.net about hey what's supposed to actually be the mil spec because again like chris pointed out mil spec is I wouldn't say lowest bidder. It is the person who can who can deliver the lowest price at a given performance point. And that's the advantage. Yes. What you're looking at, millispec, it is a standard. It is a standard. It and that's, means it and that's, has met a right. standard. Yes. And that's and that's the kind of thing I think you should look for is, okay, it's meeting these minimal baseline standards. When we talk about armor, we'll, we'll talk about the same thing. But you have to know what the standard is to, to know if that's a good standard. But in a bulk carrier, I would say it's got to be – they don't have the, the, the shave tail, all the weird stuff from the 90s anymore. Yeah, no, so all, all that's yeah, that's pretty much disappeared. Yeah, so an M16 carrier, which means it's full tail, all that's got the weight to it, and it's it's cocking on the uh, on the bolt, not on the hammer itself. Um, carrier key's got to be staked. 
I, again, that was a thing that was around for a long time. You've got to stake the carrier keys because I've seen those come loose at, at classes. And the nice thing is, again, knowing stuff, you could buy an unstaked carrier key and then stake it yourself with just a punch or a screwdriver. Mm -hmm. um, the bolt the bolt should be, uh, I remember the spec, 158 Carpenter, I think is the spec for a mil spec bolt, something like that. And um, it should be uh, Magnaflux. Yeah, I know. Right, this is real nerd stuff. Magnaflux, te Magnaflux tested. Shot peen proof load tested are all things I look for. And again, that's being picky. But the one thing I will say is is your gun's not going to function because it doesn't have those things. It just might break sooner. Yeah. It might crack the cam or, or lose a lug. But the one thing I've really gotten from the classes we do is how what a good design the AR is because you have those little variations. And as long as you stick to the standard, even if the materials aren't the best, the gun still runs. So that's what I would look for in, in the bolt and bolt carrier group. Which, thanks so, to the chart, everything pretty much is nowadays. What about the coatings on those, right? So you oh, got God. the nitride, you got the phosphate, so, nickel born, <laughs> yeah. right? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I stick with the standard phosphate stuff just because it's the standard. And I've seen, it just seems like there's so many variations that I'll see like in some class where it's like flaking off. And mm -hmm. I'm worried if the coating's flaking off, what's that causing an issue? Right. And so... I like the idea of that because that's one thing I do miss with G36 is the crazy HK Uber coating. I never scrubbed anything on that bolt carrier assembly. I just, with a rag and it just all wiped off whatever crazy kraut space magic they were using to make that, that coating. It just, it just wiped off. And um, I think it's something to look at. But again, a little more elbow grease with the toothbrush. And that's, you know, mm -hmm. takes care of that. I do like the idea behind it, but. I've been asked that question several times, yeah. and like I said, your product of your environment, not Chrome. Yeah, not Chrome. And, yeah, and, yeah, that's and, that's one thing. Yeah. And my, I can't tell you like Rockwell scale or anything like that. I'm just going to tell you, I don't want shiny on my rifle. <laughs> you know, absolutely. And I, I mean, I don't want stainless. I want yeah. I want dark. Yep. I want non-reflective. Um, and again, there's so many the the. The well, variants. Well, both both you and I growing up with eighty deuce. Uh, oh, we had some shiny stuff. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Because they, they yeah. required us. The other guys didn't know what they were doing. Oh, that that's still carbon. No, that's no, that's, that's the that's, finish. Yes, yes, the bluing. Yeah. That's yeah. no. You need to scrape that off. Yeah. I, I remember. It's not blue. What are you talking about? Okay. All right. You know. Awesome. I'm not going to have this conversation with you. Let's let's continue on. Yeah. Um, what I like about the AR platform, as far as like bolt carrier groups and uh your your different bolts they're easy to work on yeah and yeah. you know most likely your gas rings are going to wear out yep the test to see if your gas rings it's does your bolt stand on its own weight everyone can do that you can you know shotgun pull it out set it on the table oh no it fell on its own weight three bucks later four bucks later i've replaced those mm -hmm. gas rings yep and it's back working again um it's it's something simple to service yeah. If yep. The bolt itself. We've had them break the lugs. Yep. Deltas. The gun still you functions. Know who you are. Yeah, I've you seen know, that but yeah, you just okay. You pull out the bolt, put yep. a new one. Bam. There yeah, we well, go. Running cephalic. Uh, some of those guns are <laughs> are not well maintained, and and I've seen that. Yeah. I've seen guys run almost a whole full course of fire with a broken lug, and not realizing it, like hey, something feels weird, but mm -hmm. it's still shooting, and and that yeah. was the issue. The only reason I found out is because that broke piece fell down into the trigger group and i couldn't yep. put my weapon on, on <laughs> yep. safe so well oh hey 
What this? Oh, that looks like a lug. Well, yep, there yeah. you go. So as you mentioned barrels, and uh, th- this is one of those times I, I talk about me being a uh, new guy to the gun world and only having my military experience. At group, there was a point where we were changing our barrels out every 10,000 rounds. Like, they would come in, and they would gauge our guns and be like, oh, they fired 10,000 rounds. we got to put a new barrel in. So I thought that the life expectancy of a barrel was 10,000 <laughs> rounds. And I remember it was somewhere right around like 2011. I realized, wait, there's like thousands and thousands of rounds left in that barrel. Can I keep that? Like, I'll take that. You know, <laughs> you don't need that anymore. I'll gladly take it. Um, so often we we realize or we don't know what we don't know, and so we may have heard something like me. I thought that it had a 10,000 round uh, life expectancy. You got to do your research and find out about those. Pay- Particular things just because you heard it on the range or someone said it um, doesn't mean that unit may be doing that thing. They may that unit yep. may have a, a reason why they change out the barrels every ten thousand rounds, and it could be a good reason or it could be or it could just because that's just because yeah. you know. Um, so you got to do your due diligence, and just because oh, I saw this soft unit do it or you know this law enforcement agency do it, department policy sometimes can be. Uh, counterproductive yeah and actually that goes back to a good point uh we talk about you know how many guns do you own you know by night vision how much ammunition do you have probably a fair bit how many guys have spare bolts spare gas rings spare gas tubes things like that i mean if you think about uh disruptions of supply lines for whatever reasons do you have spare bolts to keep your rifle running i've talked about it in class where we had a guy's rifle lugs break and he ended up on a mission, having to go to an AK. And myself, as the 18 Bravo, I realized that's my fault. And so thereafter, I carried a whole BCG ready yep. to go that if someone had in, fire imprint breaks, something. Yeah. You know, Sod's Law, Murphy's Law, things happen. I could just pull that out of that pouch and throw it to the guy. I don't think I told a story yet on the podcast, but when I was still active, our, our sister team had a brand new Charlie show up. And because he was brand new, he's afraid to ask anyone on his team questions because at least he be deemed as, as dumb and not knowing. So he comes to me, hey, can can we modify our guns? I want to put this pistol grip on mine. Is that okay? Like, yeah, sure. Do you need any help? Do you know what you're doing? Oh, no, no, I'm good. I'm good. Okay, great. So then a couple weeks later, both teams go out to the range. And the same new Charlie comes over to me. Hey, uh, something's wrong with my gun. Why? What's wrong? Well, the selector switch is just spinning. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. Well, you see your your uh, your pistol grip. Yeah. What happened to the pin and the spring that uh, that were were there when you took it off? Huh? So uh, we we took it apart. I took it apart. And lucky for him, the pin was still there. But he didn't have a spring. So then he, since he was in uniform, I pulled out the Skillcraft pen that was in his his little uh, pen pocket, took it apart, took the spring from the skill craft, shoved it in there, and then put his pistol grip back on, and the thing worked like a champ. Saved some wasta there. He he didn't look stupid in front of his team, even though he was stupid. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, rock on. I want to be able to fix those problems. Yeah. yeah. You know, like you said, supply issues. Um, look at, hey, this is a system that I'm depending on. We have spare batteries. Yeah. What else do we need? What What parts wear out? And if you haven't experienced a part wearing out, there are a lot of resources. Look look out there and find out, hey, this particular brand weapon I have, what are some of the problems people are having with it? And if that's something, you know, you want, 
get it and have it in your toolbox. And that's another argument for sticking to a standard is because I can look at a ton of data on when a 14-and-a-half-inch direct gas impingement M4 wears out, what parts wear out, where they will wear out. If you got some weird system, you don't know 8. when it's going. 8.9-inch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah 8.9-inch or you have some sort of piston system. You don't, you don't know because every mechanical thing has problems is what I've found. And the thing is if 10,000 people are using it, you'll know what the problems are when the problem is to be expected. If you're the only guy using that, you don't know when it's going to have the problem and what the problem is going to be. Anyone, anyone else? Anything else? We've got selector switches here. Oh. Want to talk selectors? Yeah. yeah. Let's talk selectors. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'll be, I'm biased. I don't like the 45-degree selectors. I do not like the 45 either. Uh, I think it's, again, that's focus on speed over, like, carrying a gun. And speaking as, like, like I told you where I fell through a, a ceiling one time. Mm -hmm. And I'd been riding the selector and came off safe, thankfully, you know, fingers straightened off the trigger. But, again, you want that deliberate motion. It's not all about speed. It's about making a deliberate decision to come off and come safe. for me i have spent 20 years yes doing yeah. one yep. movement yep and to change it yep. I, I don't yeah well now i think that comes down to a lot of things with the platform what is your end state yeah if your end state is you want to be in competition you want to shoot balloons faster than the next guy great that 45 makes sense because it is you know shaving milliseconds off got it mm -hmm. but if i'm using this and my intent is to protect myself protect my family or use it for work yeah then I don't want that. I want that very deliberate, you know, 45-degree uh, angle. Sorry, that 90-degree angle Yeah. Um, when, when you do that. I want that very deliberate thing. So how about uh, Ambi selectors? A, how do you guys feel? So I like Ambi I like Ambi selectors because, again, like, I'm buying for a bunch of guys. Mm -hmm. So I have to go with, okay, I've got lefties. And we used to have HKs, which are Ambi. So we got these. And we got the Knights. And I like the Knights because it's got three different options. You can have a completely full Weak side safety, you can have the little shorty one with a little scallop, or you can just have like a nub, which isn't really being used, but some guys don't want to use it. And that's why I like that one, because again, I'm not picking for me, I'm picking for like 55 some yeah, guys. Yeah. So that's that's my thing. I like them, but... I like them too. When you shoot offhand. Yeah. I mean, I like to be able to wrap yeah. my thumb around and the keep it grip like I would if I was shooting stronghand. So for that reason, I like them. Well, I personally don't like them. I don't like the way they feel. Um, I don't like that, you know, sticking down and, and hitting my, you know, my knuckle as I'm shooting. But with that said, uh, I tend to use them um, just because as I'm teaching, I'm instructing. If I'm using my gun and I'm demoing, then I can hold the gun and I can face the students and I can talk through what I'm doing and I can manipulate the safety. Then all the students can actually see it moving and just for that visual thing um to help aid the class and aid as an instructor that's one of the reasons why i keep it but if it wasn't for that i would ditch it and would just keep a regular one yeah i don't use one i and it comes from dyslexia I, no oh, no okay. it, it comes from when i first got to group we had them on all our guns and they were they were a very poor design okay and it often yep. came loose and it gave more problems than it solved and so Based off of that experience, I haven't come across that one that like, oh, yeah, this is amazing um, or that I've felt or deemed that it was necessary enough that I needed to seek yeah. it out. Yep. And that's off that that poor experience. Uh, you know, it's like tape switches. I, I talk about tape switches. I can bring that up. I don't use. <laughs> I, that's actually what I was thinking when he was talking. About I don't switches, use tape yeah. switches because of the poor experiences that I had of the poor tape switches when I grew up with them. 
I'm sure that they finally fixed that problem, but I have taught myself out of that problem. I, I realize I'm, this, I'm having the dinosaur conversation right now. Like, no, I like my LC. I'm only going to ever carry my magazines this way. Um, you know, that, that happens. But uh, I'm not opposed to it. And definitely for people that are starting out and learning, there are good quality things. Like yeah. my kids, as I'm training them, um, and they're trying to figure out what works for them, I'm definitely not opposed to having them on their guns. And then for your those shooters out there that are uh, are hand-challenged and they have their left hand and they live in a right-handed world, I think it is definitely worth it. I, I really do. And yeah. getting it, finding and researching that quality product is worth it. Me, I don't have the, the desire to, to spend the extra $15, I guess. <laughs> well, you said something interesting, right, going that – that left-handed guy in that right-handed world, man, the left-handed stuff for AR is really coming around. So yeah. if you are left-handed, buy a left-handed AR upper we and have, bolt. Yeah, we have a student, and you know who you are. You're listening. I like your setup. You're a left-handed individual, and you're like, I'm going to make this work for me. Didn't say something about, no, I need to get a, a different rifle that I can set up, Ambi. You, you got an AR and made it work. And that rifle runs beautifully. Let's, let's talk barrels and length and gas tubes and stuff. Uh, this is one of those uh, backwards thinking things. We uh, often think bigger is better. And, and when we come to the carbine, we start thinking smaller is better. There is a happy medium somewhere. And I think a lot of that depends on what are you using it for. Like me, this is my utility build. It's a 16-inch. Flynn, this is your work gun. Yep. It's 11.5 with a suppressor. No. Different. It has a different purpose. So there isn't a, hey, I'm a size 10. You know, there is a different for each job or each shoe that you're, you're taking. To say that, you can't hit that target at 500 meters with that 4-inch that AR pistol, right? To say that that short barrel is a little bit is less accurate, I would say that's going to be that 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 misconception of the barrels, right? It's not going to be any less accurate, but what's going to happen is you're going to have those those more environmental effects on it. So it's not less accurate. What do you mean by those environmental effects? The environment, right? The wind, and you're losing a lot of velocity with that that short barrel. So you just need to practice more and know how that's going to affect it. So. Is it impossible? It's going to be a lot harder to hit that that three five hundred meter shot with a, a four inch or a seven inch barrel than it would be with a, a sixteen inch barrel, but it's still doable, and that all comes back to training. And again, what's your purpose for that that gun? So when I look at barrels, is there a purpose for a four inch AR fifteen? I don't know, but they make them. So <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, but so when I look at a, a barrel, when I'm either going to build or replace a barrel, the first thing I do is what's my caliber and what am I doing with this? What's my, my main purpose for Your this, end state. this weapon and what I'm going to use it for is kind of going to determine what I want for a cartridge. Also the availability, you know, is this my using for training and everything where we're, we're shooting five, five, six, or do I want that weird <clears throat> caliber that it's going to be harder to get ammo or more expensive for the ammo. So then I look at 
once I got my caliber selection, then I'm gonna look at my barrel twist on what what I want for my barrel twist. Right. Right. So am I shooting that that small light bullet where I need that one in twelve or one in ten, or right. am I am I gonna also go out to maybe six eight hundred meters where I want that seventy seven grain barrel where I, yep. I definitely need that one in seven twist. So once I figure that out, then I then I'll go to the length and right. For me, I think a I've got a couple that are ten and a half. Um, I would go sixteen is is easy because you can do anything with it mm -hmm. um, as far as stock length and you know whether yeah. it's a pistol or a rifle. So going with that sixteen inch barrel is kind of the easy button, and it's actually a a, a good size barrel. It's not too long, right? You still work in the house, we, like we said earlier. Yeah. We've been doing it for years, so. It's also long enough to where I'm still getting, maintaining that velocity to do those long distance shots as well. So I think that's a good, a good, if you don't know which barrel to get and you're kind of on the fence or you want a decent all around, I would say go with that 16 inch. One, legally speaking, it's gonna be easier to use. And then also functionality, it's gonna give you that, that versatility. Well, let's let's take something uh, simple and standard, like um, whatever's easiest for you to work with, uh, M193 or uh, M855, as far as uh, you know, muzzle velocity. What's the difference between, say, a, a 10.3, 10.5 inch barrel versus a 16 inch barrel? How so, much are you actually losing? I, be, I believe it's a couple hundred. Well, yeah, it's a couple to, hundred. Yeah, hundred to two hundred feet yeah. per second per inch that you shorten that. Uh, most of the tests that you're gonna you see for ballistic charts and everything are gonna be based off of a 16 or 18 inch barrel. So from that, when you look at the, the small print at the bottom of that ballistics chart, it'll tell you 16 or 18, and you're running that 10 and a half, it, factor in 200 feet per second per inch or shorter than that is what you're gonna lose, which will cause more wind effect on that round because mm -hmm. it's going slower. Well, I know you know, I have a couple pistols, mm -hmm. so uh, you know the shorter length barrels. Um, most of them around ten five, ten point five. Um, but everything that I, I can do and they should do, I, I think you know sixteen inches is is a good mm -hmm. medium. That's a good one to have. You know, like you said, it's legal. I remember doing a vehicle class, and there were some guys with some really nice pistols or some registered SBRs, and they were having a hard time maneuvering. So I took out my old school uh, FNFAL with a I don't even know what it is. Twenty inch barrel with like some ginormous STG fifty eight <laughs> flash hider that's like half a foot itself, and I was doing every all the work in that car, maneuvering it, you know, around my head, over the steering wheel, out the windows, and doing all that just fine. That the tech, you know, showing these guys, yep. you got the proper techniques, put enough time in, you can have this giant musket of a of a firearm and still be successful with it. So you know, I know the shorties are really flashy and they're really cool, and that's the you know an end thing. Um, that's your again, star belly sneeze. Um, so so you're looking good, but I think you aren't losing a lot for for that shorty. You're losing a lot of capabilities by by chopping that thing down. Absolutely. And then you look at energy on impact, right? The by losing that velocity, you're losing a majority of that energy on impact too. So the the effectiveness of that round on target is going to be less with a shorter barrel because of that loss in velocity. Yeah, at the same time too, when you're <clears throat> looking at any sort of like a ballistics on the uh, 
the box, you have to read the fine print because we had been looking at a load and it was putting up some pretty impressive numbers. And then we looked at the, uh, the actual hard data and they were firing it from a 24 inch test barrel. <laughs> which didn't really apply to the, the 10-3s That's, we were going to be doing. Exactly. So, you know. uh, like the um, the two two four Valkyrie that yeah, they were right, firing yeah. out of the 31-inch barrel. It's like, who does that? Okay. I, I mean, yeah, if that's right. what you got to do yeah. to make this happen. Sure. But <clears throat> yeah. yeah, tell the truth, man. Tell the truth. Yeah. Oh, and, they did. It's just really small. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and two of that stuff we talk about, you know, pistol, SBR, and the legality is for some states, uh, a pistol is a big hassle. Other states, it's, it's less of a hassle. Uh, SBRs are totally another animal because at least they're a defined legal class, whereas pistols, the ATF, has its whims and wishes, and like we saw, they try to change it from being so. Um, you've got to consider that stuff because I still think, I kind of defer to the FBI. I think for law enforcement and the average armed citizen, I think an 11.5 is kind of like the ideal size of like compact but still can reach out, but that's an SBR or a pistol. So... I think a 16-inch barrel, or if you want to get nuts, a 14.5 uh, with a pin and welded flash hider. Yep. But then you're kind of stuck with that flash hider, whichever yes. one you – so pick a good one. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of flash hiders. Yeah. I, a2 birdcage. I was just about to say that. So here's why I, I like it. Because I've used it for so long, and the way we train in the soft world is we're shooting next to people. Yep. And moving in stacks. So yep. it gives me the best, I'll say, muzzle control and without causing detriment to my fellow teammates as, as we're moving. And they're like 10 bucks. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, unless you're mounting a suppressor, I think just stick, that, with, yeah, just that, stick with the AT. If I am mounting a muzzle device at the end, yeah. you know, a suppressor or a loudener or, you know, yeah, you know right. something like that. Yeah. Uh, then I'm going to use whatever works for that uh, device. But if I'm just my regular gun, I don't like compensators. I don't yeah. like some of the, the crazy stuff that's out there. The, what is it, Strike Industries cookie cutter. Standing next to a guy shooting that on an open range, I want to punch him in the face. Doing housework with that guy, I'm, no. Hey, but it looks really cool. Yeah, well, and that and that goes back to what we're talking about, like chasing split times on a flat mm -hmm. versus like realist, like working in, in, inside of a structure or with other people. If, I mean, if you're in state and your gun is set up for, for competition, great breaks, yeah. sure, right. yeah, no yeah. problem. Right, but if it's a defensive gun, yeah. you need a flash hider on the, it. The, the flash, the, the concussion, everything mm -hmm. comes off that. I mean, we uh, we played around with the surefire breaks because we were running ten threes, mm -hmm. but they were 100 percent suppressed. So keep keep your suppressor on at all times. Yeah. But, then there would be guys who they'll take their cans off because they're being a little lazy and they don't want to have to clean the gun. The can's heavy. Yeah, right. Yeah, every day's arm day at the range if your rifle's heavy enough. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, they were taking them off and it finally had to be like, hey man, you got to put that thing back on because you're you're knocking guys' fillings out of their head with that yep. with that muzzle break. I like you know maybe I'm just a little more elitist than you guys, but I like Smith's Vortex. I put that on a lot of my a lot of my guns. It does a very good job as a flash hider. I think that's probably one of the best flash hiders mm -hmm. that, that's out there. Uh, but, yeah, you are penny, you're spending money for it. Yeah. Um, and I've heard guys that, oh, no, it's garbage. I, I've seen them break the harmonics. I'm like, that same concept, I've run on a 50 cal, which is a lot more force, and I didn't see those break. Yeah, I've, I've run on various guns, Smith's Vortex, since 
before I got in the military, 99 yeah. maybe, and I haven't had any issues with them. So I, or I dig them. I still, you know, building out a gun, that's one of those things that's uh, it's further down the line on places that I need to replace. So, so I'm going to stick with that birdcage. And I think it's seeing in classes, I think it's a shiny object. I want to be different than everyone else. I don't want someone to think I have a stock rifle. So that's an easy thing because anyone can do that. It's, you know, shoot a, a vice and a, a plumbing wrench will mm-hmm. change a, a flash hider. So you don't have to have any specialty training or tools. And you can buy something off the internet and slap it on and think that now I'm different. Just really be careful, you know. And I, that's something that I would avoid changing unless you're gaining extra benefits. And that Vortex, I will say that that's probably the the one I would go to put on a gun other than a birdcage. Mm-hmm. And what's funny is because we do have such a fixation on barrel length, people go out and buy these two, three inch long flash yeah. hiders that, cause I'll be honest, I have, <clears throat> I have a Colt 69, 20, 16 inch barrel with a surefire flash hider. It totally destroys the handling. Whereas when I had the A2, it just was just that little bit shorter. Yeah. So I, I will admit that, um, the Noveski flaming pig, I, I just yeah. think that thing is beautiful, and I, I like the way it looks. I like the way that it, what it does with the gases. Yeah. But I think that falls into that more, less utility, more uh, sports utility. Yeah. Yeah. There's, um, I don't want to burn them. There's someone I know who, when I got a surefire muzzle brake, put it on their rifle, 16-inch rifle. Mm-hmm. And, okay, muzzle brake shoots real flat. That's great. And then he proceeds to take one of the uh, Surefire Wardens, you know, mm-hmm. the um, yep. which is doing kind of like that yep. comp. But, and he puts it over that. So I'm like, okay, now you've got a really crummy, heavy flash hider that doesn't offer any muzzle <laughs> compensation. You should have just stuck with the A2 <laughs> on that. <laughs> yeah. All right. So. We're, we're still talking barrels and stuff. Yeah. Any particular uh, barrels you guys like or is your ideal? Pencil barrel, medium? The uh, M4 cut, heavy barrels. Well, without going into like talking about metallurgy and yeah, stuff, yeah, um, I will say that when the, the platform we're talking about is 50, 60 years old, shoot, it's more than that. It's, it's almost 70 yeah. years old. Uh, it's a design that's been around. So there have been massive improvements in barrel manufacturer technology, in metal technology. So there's a movement to try and go to that pencil barrel and things yeah. like that, that, that ultra light, my experience, heavy barrel that that's, you know, what I, I grew up with. Um, there's costs and benefits to everything you're going to do. So what I say on that is what is your end state and find what is going to best meet what you're trying to accomplish. As far as getting your barrel, you know, uh, I'm a big fan of, we've mentioned Aero Precision, but also Ballistic Advantage, their barrel company. Yes. You know, th- that's... Yeah. Dig them a lot. I, I like their products. And one of the reasons why I like their products is the consistency of quality that I see coming out of them. Uh, Yankee Hill, same thing. It's a consistent quality product coming out. Um, but right now, it's almost like, <laughs> what can I get that isn't garbage, you know, that that's gonna perform i mean we, we talked about it with the yep. bolts like i'm looking at i'm not building a gun right now but i'm looking at buying barrels because 
if things start drying up, I eventually gonna have to replace the barrel on this. Yeah, you know, I have to have those products. And the barrel is something that I'm looking at at grabbing extras of. Yeah, yeah. So the big thing with a barrel, and I talk this in in precision rifle shooting and everything, it's consistency. Will that barrel consistently shoot in the same spot? Because if it doesn't, you can't you can't make it and adjust it to shoot where you want it to because it doesn't consistently shoot there. So that's all you're looking for in that barrel. Now, whether that barrel costs you 50 bucks or $2,000, it still has to shoot consistent. So if you get that $2,000 because, oh, you, I spent $2,000 on this, it, it should, it, that means it's better, right? Well, if it doesn't shoot consistent, now you've just basically bought a rifle that shoots like a shotgun, except I, one hole at a I've time. I've got a $69 no-name barrel that I got off of um, Classic Firearms. That is phenomenal. That thing is like a tack driver. I don't know if I bought that same barrel, it would do the same thing. I yeah. got lucky on that run. And that's one of the things that you have when you go with those those lowering companies. Well, today Bob was the one running the machine. Tomorrow you got Charlie. And well, Charlie, he likes the sauce a little too much. And, uh, you know, the quality control isn't always there. Where, you know, Ballistic Advantage, they have that quality control. And you know you're getting that more consistency out of them yeah no i mean i I'll, i have a noted affinity for for pencil barrels just because i look at things from my perspective which is i'm probably not going to get into a several hundred round gunfight i need something that's light and easy to carry but that being said they don't hold up and it's not the the actual incident it's all the practice leading up to it so if we're going to burn out barrels or they're going to be hotter or whatever else so we just and plus hanging suppressors off things so now we're using like the fbi heavy barrel for the same reason that I think the Army ended up with that M4A1 profile barrel, just the yeah. thicker barrels, because they just hold up for longer. Absolutely. And, that, and that's a big thing you give those barrels, right? Everyone thinks, oh, it's a bull barrel, it's going to yeah. be more accurate. Well, no, the reason the military has a lot of bull barrels on, like the M24, well, because it's a we shoot a lot of rounds and it dissipates heat faster. So having my, my Ruger Model 77 hunting rifle that has a real thin profile yep. barrel... Well, it's thin like that because it's for hunting. You're carrying it possibly long distances. Well, that thing's a tack driver, you know, just like my M24 was. But you're shooting one round. Yeah. yeah, If I'm, you know, going to the range and shooting a thousand rounds, well, that thing's going to wear out super quick because it is a thin barrel. So, and like you you hit on it. What are you using it for? How much are you shooting it? Are you going to the range and running 50 magazines through it in a day? So, so then if we're talking. A rifle set up for home defense or for yeah. work, then we're not going with a super thin barrel. We're going to want something that's yeah. a little yeah. rigid. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And like you said, I mean, uh, I know I have my ornament on off the end of one of mine with with a can that's always there. So I want something that is rigid yeah. that, to, to support that yeah. can. Yeah, because the the one baffle strike I actually had was uh, was on a pencil barrel. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, like, eh, that'll teach you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, so what about uh, gas length? I like carbine. I, I may have, yeah, carbine. I mean, yeah. It's it's a, a sweet spot. Yep. Um, most of the barrels out there now, you, you can get them in that, that configuration and just do it. What about mid-length or, or full length? What do you guys think about that? 
I, I honestly, with the gaff length, I just use whatever's on the barrel when I buy it. <laughs> <laughs> so if it's carbine length, I, I get a carbine length yeah. gaff tube. Uh-huh. So well, and so I think tuning the gas system's a little bit more important. So you, this is one of those issues of if you're building something from the ground up from scratch, you may put those calculations into it. Or if you, we find ourselves in the position we are now, where like, oh, so that's the only barrel you have and that's the only barrel you've had in the past six months. Okay. I've got to go with that system. You can modify other parts on the gun, you know, working the recoil, the recoil spring, Mm -hmm. um, your, your buffer system to help you with that. I'm not saying that, you know, poured out your, uh, your, your gas port or anything, but ARs are over gas for a reason. It, it, it will work. You can make it work. You can time these things. Um, it's not, not really a big problem. In the gas system, I do recommend, especially guys that are running suppressed, think about getting your adjustable gas block. Um, a, there are a lot of companies out there that make good uh, gas blocks that have the suppressor setting on them. Um, and then throwing that in, now we're changing all those monkey wrenches about the gas system. Get a BCG that is designed for a suppressor. So you have that suppressor setting on there. Uh We've had the conversation with people about, oh, I get so much gas blowing back in my face. Well, there are things you can do about that. You can modify your charging handle. They sell commercial off-the-shelf charging handles to improve what's coming back in your face for your comfortability and also uh, the efficiency of the rifle. Yeah, no, I think the mid-length is a really neat system. But, like, again, not to go as hit on my same points, but it's not the standard because I think – Rock River, BCM, I think a bunch of different, I know Knights and Colt even has mid-lengths, and they're all to some degree different because there is no standard yet, and I do think there are some benefits. But talking logistics, I know if I need a new gas tube, I can go anywhere, Brownells, Midway, most local gun shops, and grab a carbine gas tube, you know, if something happens. So So, uh, talking barrels, talking gas systems, we have to discuss the elephant in the room. Two-piston or not to piston. I gotta say, not to piston. I'm a not a piston guy. I, I know there are a lot of people. Oh, the four sixteen. My experience with the four sixteen is I'd rather have a uh, you know Mark eighteen. So uh, we had four sixteens donated to my company. We no longer use them. Enough said. There are so many people out there right now. What? I so know. were those version ones or twos? That I'm not sure. Okay, because they did have an issue with their gas porting when you went to the 10 and 10 and a half inch barrels. Um, but that has been fixed. So I don't want to say I'm a piston guy, but I do like a piston. I'm not so, opposed to a piston on a different system, yeah. but I'm saying I'm not smarter than Stoner. <laughs> I, so my... Again, it goes back to practical and logistic. The only piston that we've messed with that I thought was worth it was the 416. And somebody a lot smarter than me said that the 416 runs well not because it's a piston, but because it's an HK. So that is true. The the HK it's just got so many features. But the question is, is how much is that going to cost you to get that? Oh yeah, I now think you're looking at a huge yeah, price point yeah. on that one. Um, I mean, look at the scars. Yeah. We, oh yeah. We got scars back. So the original idea behind the SCAR was to give you a kit that had a, you could switch the lower, change a barrel and a bolt, and now you can go from 556, 762. Well, they were kind of falling behind, so they just 
produced the 556 version and the 762 version. So we ran the uh, 556, and we're we're the the test bed team. So Who, who's we? Uh, Insoff. On my on my team. <laughs> so okay, so that was your team. Okay. Yeah. So we we ran those. Um, obviously, nobody liked the reciprocating charging handle. No. Nobody liked it. But getting past that, one of the the tests on it was is we were not allowed to clean that gun for a couple thousand rounds. And we had to record every malfunction, whether it was a magazine issue. A j- if it stopped shooting when we were trying to shoot, it got recorded. And they were very reliable guns. And we didn't clean them. We didn't oil them. Like, we did our initial oil and everything and just went, started shooting thousands of rounds. And it performed. It was, the bolt was cleaner. Um, but I, being a Bravo, we had never worked on piston guns, so... If there was an issue with the piston system, I had to do some research to figure out what it was, which we didn't have any issues with it, but that could have been a problem. Uh, we took them to Iraq. They worked fine. What time frame was this, if you don't mind me asking? Ooh. I want to say around 2008, maybe. Okay, that makes about. sense. Did you ever hear my story about McKellar's Lodge? No. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so I built my first foul, I don't know, it was late 90s, and I was a, um, was on the foul files, which was a you know user thing. on. Yeah, anyways, so I love the platform. Every once in a while they have group buys, so they had some group buy for super cheap 7.62 or, or 308 uh, Indian surplus. ammo, surplus ammo. So I, shoot, I bought a couple 50-cal cans of this stuff, right? And it was the most horrible, you know, unreliable ammo. Anyways, so I, I'm not going to throw out ammo. I've been carrying this ammo around for, for years now. And I'm in the middle of, of the course. Was had, didn't have anything to do with me. There's plenty of guys through the course and plenty of, of real people. I just happened to be right place, right time. And I got a personal invite to go out to McKellar's Lodge because uh, FN was coming. They're shutting shutting it down. And they were going to have guys test out scar heavies and lights as well as all their other stuff and they had brought ammo for everything else except for they didn't bring any 5.56 or any uh, 7.62 so they said if you got ammo bring it I'm like I'm going to get rid of this ammo so I bring two fifty cal cans full of junk 308 <laughs> here uh, FN is all excited because legitimately guys who are there are probably guys from CAG probably guys from uh, you know some of the different groups maybe the, the weapons committee all these other people who, who got invited and again I was nobody at all just happy right place right time and I got this invite so I go walking out, like set my ammo down. Here you go, boys. And guys are like, bang, bang, chunk. And now what, what's wrong with this? And then the the, uh, <laughs> the poor FN guys are losing their mind. What's wrong with our heavies? They, they worked perfect <laughs> yesterday. And now they can't get like every, you know, two or three rounds without some catastrophic malfunction. So you essentially sabotage your contract. I, well, well <laughs> one, one might say that. But yes. but I they still issued them. I still carried one. Yeah. So. Anyways, we had them in Afghanistan too. The heavies, the heavies, the yeah. 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 But pistons, generally, I think that one of the reasons I don't like them is they're they're heavier and I think they have a sharper recoil than pulse. Yeah. But and, um, and most of them aren't that well thought out. And when we we start to try and change something yeah. to make it to be something yeah. different, we see it all the time in the AK world. Someone tries to take an AK and turn it into a precision rifle. I'm gonna I'm gonna make this AK be a sports car, bro, bro. I was invited to help run a four fun event up in New Hampshire um, to run a bunch of 
the, the company is hosting it. They have these supposedly these submitted angle AKs. Their their AKs are like anywhere like I don't know fifteen hundred to three grand. They're selling all kinds of fanboys up there with these tricked out AKs. Somebody trying to make something that it wasn't. And now I have experience with AKs. I, I bought my first when I was like eighteen years old. Um, been running for a while. Been deployed tons of times, and I've seen these AKs take all kinds of abuse and still run. I have never experienced mm-hmm. so many AKs failing and having malfunctions and did with all these, you know, supposed precision AKs. It was it was embarrassing. I I was appalled. I had never seen AKs fall apart the way these things were. And what what was it? Somebody trying to take something and make it what what, what it's not. No. Yeah. And so with the piston, piston ARs, I think you're trying to make it into something different. And I think you make a really good point, uh, old Chris. when you say piston ARs because one of the things like we had the G36 that was a piston awesome I mean great okay not the most user friendly rifle but a very reliable reliable system the uh, the SIG um, what are the ones that the Brits are you the um, the MCX piston awesome little rifle great gun but they were designed around a piston Mm -hmm. the the AR was not designed to have that that piston and I think when you look at that like I hate to keep going back to the 416 but they didn't try to cram that piston system into existing AR-15 uh, uh, furniture s- space. Yeah, space. They yeah. raised the, the height of their upper receiver. They did. They built everything around the pistons. That's why I think it runs better. Yeah, absolutely. And so if you're going to stick with an AR, I say just stay with gas. It's and again, you can walk in any gun shop and find spare parts for a direct gas AR. M- mostly. Mostly. Well, oh yeah. <laughs> wow. uh, this was recorded in 2021, so that may not be true <laughs> right now at the time of publication. But yeah, and you can get a gas tube for what? 10 bucks. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's it's something that you can have in your toolbox. Yes. And it's something that if it goes wrong, you can replace it with minimal tools. Yeah. On the range. In the team house. Yeah. You know, you can get that yeah. weapon system back into operation. This is my right.